The word of the Lord is an abiding word, as we've just said in song, and that's one of the many reasons why we turn to it again and again in times of need. And we do so now as we continue to worship our God. You can see in your bulletin that we're turning way back to the book of Exodus, focusing on chapter 15. Before I read for us, I'll explain why it is that we're even turning here in the first place. Exodus 15. I've had this passage in mind for a month or so now, and here's why. A month ago or so, back when we were still making our way through the tail end of 2 Samuel, one of the things that we noticed there, one of the lessons that we learned there, was that the Bible is a book that gives us both prose and poetry. That's one of its glories. The Bible's that kind of book to give us both prose and poetry. That's one of the things that rightly makes it satisfying for our souls. And remember, we saw that in 2 Samuel because David the poet, King David the songwriter, the end of that book, David gave us a poetic recounting of how the Lord had delivered him from his enemies. And of course, that was a very different kind of recounting than the prose history of the same episodes that we'd read earlier in the book. So on the one hand, yes, you get the prose, you get the relatively straightforward straightforward narrative of what happened, just the facts, more or less. But on the other hand, you also get the poetry. You get the stylized, metaphorical, imaginative, fantastic, soaring descriptions of the same event. The Bible's like that. It gives us both prose and poetry. Well, no surprise that that particular Sunday morning when we were reflecting upon all of that, in our sermon discussion that day, somebody mentioned that Exodus chapters 14 and 15 are a wonderful illustration of the very same point, and they are. Exodus is a book that gives us both prose and poetry, just like First and Second Samuel. Moses himself was a man of both prose and poetry, just like David, just like you and me. In in different ways, in different degrees, we're all wired this way. God has made us this way. We all need history books and song books. We all need facts and lyrics. And Exodus is another Bible book that meets that need. So that's why I'm going to read some of chapter 14 before we get into chapter 15. For our purposes here this morning, we are going to focus on the poetry in chapter 15. But let's make a running start and listen to some of the prose in chapter 14. Let's listen to the relatively straightforward narrative of what happened to set the stage for the song that we're going to hear. So Exodus 14, I'll pick up at verse 15. This is a real crisis moment at the Red Sea. The people crying out to Moses, Moses crying out to God. Verse 15 in chapter 14. 
The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch... The Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water is piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. 
I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, his horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So this is the word of our God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word in all of its parts and portions, all of its literary genre. Give us ears now, we pray, to hear your voice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something that's true of us in our personal lives, for that matter, it's, it's true in our national life as well, which is that there are certain defining events in the past that we do well to remember. It's good for us to be a remembering people. In your personal life, struggles that you've endured, like an illness or a crisis at work, victories that you've known, like a triumph at work or a healed relationship, Losses that you've known as well. But then, defining moments in our national life as well. The day that marks our independence as a nation in the summer, and so we have a parade. A more recent day when we were attacked in the late summer. And when that day rolls around, we read the names. We even have license plates that say, never forget good for us to be a remembering people. And that's true for us as Christians. The Bible calls us as the church 
to be a people who remember defining moments in salvation history in the Bible. It's good for us to be a remembering covenant people as the church. And there are few things that can be as powerful when it comes to memory as a song. Few things that have the power to make something stick like a song. Ideally, it's a good song that makes something stick that you want to. But we all know it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it's a positively dreadful song that makes something stick that you'd rather leave behind. But there's no denying it. A song can be powerful like that. The combination of music and poetry. That's why, for example, students often come up with songs to help them memorize things for a test. That's why advertisers come up with songs that we cannot forget for the rest of our lives, though we really want to. That's why old people, people in their 30s, can sing along to songs on the radio that they haven't heard since high school. But the point is, it's good for us to be a remembering covenant people as the church, remembering those defining moments in Bible salvation history. And songs are powerful that way. That's one of the reasons we sing as a church, so that we never forget. Well, that's nothing new. That was true of God's people in the Old Testament. And for them, for God's people in the Old Testament, the single greatest event that stands out in the rest of the Old Testament as the event that they were called to remember, it was this. It was their deliverance from Egypt. That was it. That's the one that stands out in the rest of the Old Testament. It was the things that God did in order to deliver them from Egypt. Wonderful things. Dreadful things. Mighty and merciful things that God did for them, including what he did for them at the Red Sea. And sure enough, right after God did those things, Moses and the people of Israel sang about it. And what we've got here in Exodus 15 is the song that marked the occasion. So here's how we'll go about it. I want to notice some major themes here in this song. I'm going to notice four of them. So we'll notice them here in Exodus 15. And then we're going to go running to Jesus Christ because all four of them are fully and finally true in him. True for us. So what we've got here in Exodus 15 is a song about what God did at the Red Sea, and and we know the story, we just heard it. God parted the waters, Israel walked through to safety, and then the waters closed back in on the Egyptians who were pursuing them, and that was the end of them. So this is a song about that. What does the song say? What are some major themes or points that we can highlight here? And as I say, I want to point out four of them. The first is this. God saved. God saved. I suppose that's the most obvious aspect of this whole episode. This was a moment when God saved his people. The army of Egypt was bearing down on them. The people of Israel were caught between the army and the sea. Pharaoh wanted to bring them back to Egypt to be his slaves again. God saved them. Verse 2 says so plainly. Verse 2 says, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. It's lovely how it's put in the first person singular. 
The believer takes this personally as an individual, and yet what he is taking personally is a salvation that God has worked for the whole people that the believer has a share in. God saved. Look down at verse 13. Here's, Here's a salvation that seems to be looking to the future now. Verse 13, it says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Your holy abode, what does that sound like? That sounds like it's a reference to the promised land before they even get there. It's put in the past tense, but it's so certain that God who brought them out of Egypt is going to eventually get them to that land that it can be stated already as a matter of fact. Same thing down in verse 17. Look at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Verse 17. It's a reference to the promised land before they even get there. Because the God who saves, he saves from start to finish. He doesn't just get his people out of Egypt where they didn't belong. He's going to get them into the promised land where they do belong which will be a kind of homecoming for them. God saved. So that's the first. Here's the second. God destroyed. That's the second. God destroyed the enemies of his people. And this point is not buried in the song. You don't have to go looking long and hard for it. You don't have to interpret tricky Hebrew verbs to find it, it's right there. It is the opening note of the song. Verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then it says it again, verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. And it goes on like that. So that's part of the song. And it might seem at first glance as if it's almost twisted to sing about this. I mean to sing about it in such a way as to celebrate it. Because this is awful, what's being described here. And for better or for worse, maybe you can picture in your own mind the scenes from those films that have tried to capture this and display this, what it was like when it happened. This is death and destruction on a massive scale. Who would sing something like this? In celebration, how can, we, how can we defend this? Well, the answer in part is that we can defend this, we can vindicate this by bearing in mind two things that I want to point out here, two very important truths about what God did. The first is this. Don't forget, this was an act of deliverance. The destruction was how he saved. It was how he rescued his people. He didn't absolutely have to do it this way. But he did. This is how he saved them. And we rest in the wisdom of God when it comes to how he does what he does. So first, it was an act of deliverance. And second, we also need to say this. It was an act of justice. 
This was God acting justly against a people who were determined to capture his own people and mistreat them again. This wasn't an innocent campaign on Egypt's part. Let's not be naive. This wasn't self-defense. This wasn't just war on Egypt's part. This was a wicked attempt to enslave the holy people of a holy God again. So both of those things are true. That doesn't make it easy to contemplate what happened. It will always be awful. But it does help us to understand it was an act of deliverance, a merciful deliverance, and it was an act of justice, impeccable justice. And that's why they could sing about it. That's why they were right to sing about it, dreadful though it was. So that's our second, God destroyed. Here's the third. So the first was God saved. The second was God destroyed. Here's the third. God got the glory. God got the glory. All the things that we've talked about so far, God saving and God destroying, why did he do those things ultimately? What was his ultimate purpose? His ultimate purpose was his own glory. It was the display of who he is and the acknowledgement of that display back to him. And that's what happened here. Look at verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. How's that for poetry? How's that for metaphor? The Lord is a man of war. How's that for anthropomorphism. In other words, talking about God in terms that sounds human in a way that helps us to understand. The Lord is a man of war. In other words, in his own divine way, he's a mighty warrior, which means he's equipped, he's courageous, he's experienced, he's determined. Or down to verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Or all the way down to verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. You see, God got the glory. All of these things that are true of him came through and were put on display. They were made manifest in what he did. And remember, back in chapter 14, the prose, the the, the straightforward narrative of what happened, that's what God said to Moses even then about why he was about to act in the way that he was going to. Listen to this from back in chapter 14. He says to Moses, Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory. Over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. That's back in chapter 14. That's God telling Moses, here's what I'm about to do and here's why I'm going to do it. The Egyptians, he says, shall know that I am the Lord. Or we can say it. We can use his covenant name, which is the way it's put there. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. It's God's way of saying, 
the Egyptians will learn my name. If they don't know it now, after my people dwelling in their midst for hundreds of years, if they don't know it now, they will. They will know my name. They watch their army march out to come after my people. That's going to be the last they see of them. They're not going to watch them march back in. Their men aren't coming home, and they're going to know that I did it. My name is Yahweh, and the Egyptians will learn my name. Now, when we say something like that about ourselves, it's the height of arrogance. I want people to know my name. Sometimes that arrogance is what makes people do horrible things. Maybe commit notorious crimes. I want want people to know my name. I want my name to be remembered after I'm gone. But when God says it, it's not arrogance. Drives us to our knees. But it's not arrogance. It's holiness because he's God. And so it is the greatest possible good that he should be known as God. That's why he acted. That's why he saved and destroyed. He was determined to get the glory. It's good and actually good for us that he should make his name known. And what he did to make a name for himself, if we can even put it that way, was good and right and merciful and just. The people of Egypt were going to learn his name. And for that matter, his own people, the people of Israel, were going to be reminded of it. Because they, like us, are prone to forget. Never forget his name. So those three so far, God saved that day. God destroyed as well. God got the glory in what he did. And that leaves one more which is not something that God did, it's what the people did, and it is this, the people sang. God saved, God destroyed, God got the glory. Well, then what did the people of Israel do? They sang this song. And and let's not overlook that. That's what this passage is. It's a song. Verse 1, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. So we see it in the very first verse in our passage, and then we see it again at the very end of the passage that I read for us, because we're told about Miriam, who took up the same song and taught others to sing it with her. They sang to the Lord. They sang to one another. It wasn't just the vertical, singing the song to God. They sang it to one another. Because it was a service that they rendered to one another to sing together. So, brothers and sisters, those four here, God saved, destroyed, got the glory. The people of Israel sang about it. And as I said at the outset, just to contemplate those four is to send us running to Jesus Christ. Running, we might say, forward in history from this moment to the moment in the fullness of time when God would send his son into the world. We go running to Christ. Why? Because all four of our points finally and fully came true in him. In the Old Testament, 
The main thing that they looked back on, the main thing that they remembered, was God delivering them from Egypt like this. Well, now as Christians, we do remember that. But now even that pales next to the most glorious thing, the main thing that we remember as Christians, which is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth around 2,000 years ago. And thinking about that in history, remembering that, we can go back through all four of our points. What was the first? God saved. Well, that's true in Christ. His death and resurrection, God saved us from our sins by paying for them in his death and then being raised to represent us. And he's still a God, just as he was In the days of Israel, he's still a God who saves from start to finish. He doesn't just bring us out from under the reign of sin where we don't belong like Egypt. He also gets us into eternal life where we do belong like the promised land. That's our hope. That's where we're headed to the world to come. So, yeah, God saved and is saving and shall save in the end. That's true in Christ. What about our second point? God destroyed Well, with trembling, we've got to say that that one's true in Jesus as well. In a sense, that's also in the past because we can look back to his life and death and resurrection and we can say that in in that moment in history, especially when Jesus died and was raised, there was a kind of holy destruction that was being wrought. Because when that happened, God was striking the fatal blow in human history against evil and against the evil one who embodies it. So in that sense, it's past. We look back on Jesus' death and resurrection. But in another sense, it is future. We're pointed forward to the future here. A future day is coming when Christ is coming back. And he will come back in judgment. And in a sense, that will be a day of destruction. Because Christ is going to come back and he's going to put down everything that was opposed to what's good and right and true. And just like we said about that Red Sea deliverance, when Christ comes back in holy judgment like that, that will be an aspect of our deliverance. For it will be, among other things, the church's rescue from the ones who opposed and persecuted her. And it will be an act of justice. Because opposition to what's good and right and true is never innocent, never just, never defensible. So even that one, that second point, God destroyed, yes, we look to Christ. And we see it true in him. So too, our third one, God got the glory. God made a name for himself. They'll know my name. Well, when Jesus was raised, God was glorified. When Jesus was crucified and raised, God put his own mercy on display. He put his own justice on display. He put his own faithfulness on display. It was God's way of saying, you will learn my name. And in the end... Now, fast-forwarding to the future in the end, everybody will confess it. Everybody will bow. Everybody will know his name. 
And then our fourth point, the people sang. Well, it's true in Christ. It's true for us as Christians. We sing too. We who are the church, we are a singing people. That's what helps us to remember the things that God did when the Son of God came into the world and He died on the cross and He was raised on the third day. As I was saying before, there are few things that are as powerful when it comes to memory as a song. Well, of all the things that we might remember, there's nothing that we want to remember more than what God did for us in Christ. That's the main thing, and so we sing about it. Hymns and songs that we sing as a church that mark what God did for us in Christ. It's good for us to be a remembering, singing covenant people. So yes, we look to Christ, and sure enough, all four of our themes today have come to their culmination in Him. And we see that when we look back on His work in history, and we anticipate it when we look forward to His return in the end. So I want to challenge us today, now that we've ransacked this passage for those themes, now that we've seen them true in Christ, I want to challenge us today. I want to challenge you to evaluate your own personal memory bank. Think about your own personal memory bank. What stands out? What memories are you carrying around with you? I suspect they run the gamut. From the sweet to the bitter, if not worse. But since we're talking about memory and music today, memory and song, let me put it this way, an an imaginative way of putting it, but maybe it'll help. These days... One way you can get some insight into somebody's heart and mind is to get a glimpse of the music on their phone. What do they listen to? What's on their favorites playlist? You can even now get a summary at year's end of the songs that you listen to the most. Sometimes you look at that list and think, oh dear, really? I don't want anyone else to see that list. What are the songs that you keep coming back to that can tell you a little bit about a person? So think of it this way. Each and every one of us is carrying around in our heads what we might call a personal playlist of memories. It's as if we've written little songs in our heads that preserve the memories that we're carrying around with us, and we keep coming back to those songs. They are our favorites, even if they're not always easy to listen to. And sing along to. Imagine the playlist. Track number one is entitled, That Time That Guy Cut Me Off on the Beltway. That's a sort of angry, hard rock song. But boy, you listen to that one a lot. You keep playing that one. In fact, you keep adding verses to it. Track number two is called, Math Test Fail, which is more of a mournful ballad. But you're, you're taking that memory with you as well. You really blew it on that test. You listen to that song a lot, and after a while you start thinking that you're just somebody who blows it all the time. The next track on the playlist is entitled The $5 Per Gallon Blues. 
which is um, a, a rather lighthearted romp, but the lightheartedness is masking something because it's starting to feel like things around us are spinning out of control. And you'd like to turn back time to a time when it didn't quite feel like that. One more, track number four on the playlist is entitled, If You Knew Me Then, You Wouldn't Love Me Now. That one's a little bit country, but it's also a little bit dark because you're carrying around with you the memories of so many ways that you failed God in the past. And those are just the first four songs. You've got a whole playlist. Each of us has a personal memory bank, and it's as if we've written these little songs. that we listen to and sing along to over and over again. So here's the question, Christian. If if we could see your own personal playlist on your phone, your playlist of memories, is there any song on it anywhere that's about what God did for you in Jesus Christ? Are you carrying that memory around with you and playing it back and singing along Is that a song that you keep coming back to? Or do you have nothing on your personal playlist except your own failures and sorrows and victories as well? In other words, is your personal playlist personal in all the wrong ways because it's all about you? Any song in the playlist you carry with you in your mind that's about what God did for you in Christ. Now, you might say, but that didn't even happen in my lifetime. The the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, that was all around 2,000 years ago. How can that be in my own personal memory bank? Well, the answer is the most important thing about you as a Christian believer is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that happened so long ago have now invaded your life right now so that you're forgiven, so that you've been made new so that you've been made hopeful for heaven. That's the most important thing about you. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ all those years ago, around 2,000 years ago, is the most important personal memory that you can carry with you and play back and sing along to. And that's because it's not just a memory in the past. It's something that you are experiencing in the present. It's It's a series of historical events that are now shaping who you are and who you're becoming. And that is vastly more significant than all of those other things you might be remembering. That time that guy cut you off on the beltway and that math test failed and what gas used to cost and those many ways that you failed God in the past. All of that, even your most bitter Painful failures are vastly outweighed by the work of God in human history in Jesus of Nazareth. Here in in 2022 America, we have such a short view of history with our 24-hour news cycle. If somebody refers to the distant past, we assume they're talking about last week. Sports fans are notorious for this. Who's the greatest first baseman of all time? And nobody's thinking about anybody who played before the year 2019. 
because everybody who played before then has been largely forgotten. Well, Christian, by far the most important memory that you can carry around with you about who you are and what your life amounts to isn't something that happened last week. It didn't happen in 2019. It happened a long, long time ago, just outside a city far, far away. And that's the death and resurrection of Jesus for you. Is that on your personal playlist of memory songs? so that you come back to it. And now to take it from the figurative to the literal. If the death and resurrection of Jesus are practically absent from your personal playlist of memories that you keep coming back to, could it be, again now moving to the literal, could it be because you have not imbibed the hymns and the songs of the church the way that you might? So think now, concretely, about your relationship to music, the church's music. I love music of all sorts, sacred and and secular, so don't hear me to say that the only music that Christians ought to be interested in are hymns and songs about God's mighty acts in Christ. But the, the question is, have you taken to heart those hymns and songs at all? Whatever that might look like in your life, in your family's life, whether it's singing hymns as a family in the living room or the music that you listen to around the house or even just the melody that you're humming to yourself when you take out the trash or the words of a hymn that you might turn over in your head when you're stuck in traffic, maybe because a guy just cut you off on the beltway. Not every Christian loves music to the same degree, and that's fine. You wouldn't expect that to be the case. But every Christian, without exception, can find those little ways to use the music and the poetry of the church to put the death and resurrection of Jesus on his playlist. Have you? Will you? Will we together as a church? And it starts here. Here and now, Sunday mornings, when we get together and sing as a church. That's why I read Colossians for us earlier in our service, where Paul's telling them about what their life as a body ought to look like, what sorts of things ought to be happening in their company as the covenant people of God. And remember, one of the things that he says to them is this, you're to be a people singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, Colossians 3. So on Sunday mornings, think about what you're singing. It starts here so that you take with you Monday through Saturday, these hymns and songs that we prize. God delivered Israel at the Red Sea, and they sang about it. Of course they did. And it helped them to remember, brothers and sisters, God has delivered us from something far more fearful than the waters of that sea and the swords of that army. God has delivered us in Christ his death and resurrection. Let's be a people who sing about it. When we sing, we remember. And it is very good to be a remembering people. May it be so.
Let's pray together. Father, we do rejoice today in what you've done for us in Christ. We remember his life and death and resurrection on our behalf thousands of years ago. We remember. And you've given us hymns and songs that help us to that end. So may we be a singing people to the praise of your glory until that day when we join in the most extraordinary chorus in the world to come and we sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.